Welcome to the Social Justice War Room, the podcast where we talk about social justice and fiction, reality, and everything in between. My guest today is a old friend from the webcomics community. He's also a member of the Army Reserves and an Iraq veteran. He does a semi-autobiographical webcomic about his time in the military with Bohica Blues. Please welcome Eric Grant. How are you doing? Oh, not too bad. How about yourself? Doing pretty well. This is going to be my last podcast for a while as I go back to full-time work, but you have the oh. honor of being the fu- finale. Ah, oh, shucks. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So you've been doing a comic for quite a long time now, and you do a, a comic that seems like kind of a niche thing since you do it very specifically about experiences in the army from the perspective of an armed forces member. How did you get into cartooning? Um, I just kind of had a natural knack for it. Uh, When I was a kid, my parents got uh, Mad Magazine for me and that just opened up all kinds of, all kinds of things. Cause it was, it was such a, uh, it was a real variety show of comics because there's different, you know, comic styles and, you know, there was there was usually like some sort of parody of a pop culture uh, movie or TV show, and then there was just like little gags and stuff inserted into the, you know, into the magazine itself. So, you know, comics didn't have to be just one thing, and I preferred that over like a lot of the superhero comics, which I just never really got into. That's yeah. I grew up reading a lot of Mad magazines too, and it definitely did have a lot of appeal and a lot of variety would read like each magazine over and over and your your comics deal with specifically being in the armed forces and what if you don't mind my saying you originally had some difficulty determining what the social justice aspect was but i thought it was pretty immediate because you're discussing the kind of day in and day out trials and tribulations of being an active duty soldier. And it's something that we usually consider in the very big picture with the most extremes of life and death, which is obviously a factor because a lot of your comics are about the Iraq war and how that turned out not great. Yeah, <laughs> but but I do think in your FAQ you say like the thing you want people to take away is just to put a human face on the people having to fight this war. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I guess if if I had to say, I'd say I kind of wanted to like deheroize the the image of troops. Uh, that sometimes kind of runs amok. Um, you know, military personnel, they're drawn from the ordinary population and uh, they're just regular folks. They're not, you know, they're not heroes. Some may do heroic things, but they're not just intrinsically, you know, like heroes or, or, or I don't want to say like Superman, but, but they're not just like these weird others, you know, like, I don't know, clone troopers grown in vats or something. Um, you know, people join the military for all sorts of different reasons. And a lot of times you got, 
you know, folks from, uh, you know, they're poorer. They, this might be the only way they have to go to college or something. And uh, so you just got regular, you know, just regular ordinary people in there just trying to do their thing. So yeah, kind of take away that, that weird hero aspect, which actually makes a lot of veterans kind of uncomfortable to be honest with you. I can imagine because once you start treating someone like a hero, you treat them as an icon rather than a person who can potentially surprise or even disappoint you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It, it's, it's a weird, like, uh, it's kind of like the, it's a form of dehumanization, but like you're trying to give props instead of take away from someone. Yeah. And so what, with that in mind, since a lot of it is, is people joining just to get college money it book of blues can play out by more like a work calm with various annoyances throughout the day except of course that there's the chance you'll be called into battle and be risking your life yeah yeah i mean you know people join for college money people join for adventure they join um because they just i'm I mean, I joined for pretty pedestrian reasons. I, I wanted adventure and college money and stuff, but really at the time, um, my hometown of Boise, Idaho, just, there just wasn't a lot of opportunity. I mean, you could either go on to university or you could get a pretty menial job. And I just, I just had to get out. I, I had to get out and do something else. So, you know, I joined the military and like I said, I mean, it was money, it was travel, it was adventure, and it was just a different menu of options kind of all at once. Um, if you ask me things like, you know, patriotic stuff, you know, flag and apple pie and stuff, I'd have said, eh, not, not really. I just wanted to get out. <laughs> were there, I'm sure you met some people in your times who were about that stuff, right? Very much so. There's, there's people that are ideologically motivated, of course. Um, but again, I mean, uh, you know, the military draws from the population and the population has people that are, you know, some are ideologically motivated for different things. Some are just trying to get by, you know, I mean, there's, there's the whole spectrum of, of motivations pretty much anywhere you look. Yeah. And in the comics, you have very extensive biographical notes about the military and process within and it seems you mentioned quite a bit about the downtime you described it as like 90 percent boredom and 10 percent terror <laughs> yeah yeah that's been a truism of of war for a long time a lot of troops have written back you know world war ii world war one um, a lot of soldiers uh, especially veteran cartoonists will will kind of use some version of that that it's 90 percent boredom 10 percent terror um, I think with Bohica Blues, what I like doing is, is showing how incredibly dull and day-to-day -day and bureaucratic um, most, of our, most of our duties are. There's only a little bit of like real excitement, adventure stuff. And then, of course, you know, of, of all the hundreds of thousands of people that serve, only a few thousand actually end up going to a, to a real deployment overseas. And, and of that of that few thousand, even less actually goes into real combat and does real army soldier stuff that you think about in the movies. So yeah, a, a lot of what we do is kind of, 
kind of dull and bureaucratic and actually quite frustrating, which makes it a fertile ground for humor. Yeah, quite a bit about poop trucks, right? <laughs> oh my God, yeah. Oh, they were, they were, I mean, we'd love to see them because that meant that the latrines were going to be clean for at least another day or so. But at the same time, it was just, oh my God, they smelled so bad. And um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe the weird feelings we had about the poop trucks was uh, kind of like uh, having to face a, a moment of vulnerability. You know, every, everybody has to poop, you know? So, yeah. So, and we were, we were dependent on them. So um, this, this, this could... Uh, this could conversation could take a really bizarre turn right about now if we're not careful. Yeah. Well, there's other more mundane things, just like lugging around sandbags to make up walls. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, they had us fill sandbags uh, for days and stack them around our trailers. Uh, and then they told us that if we ever came under attack, uh, we were literally to just hide under our beds. Um, the, the trailers we were in were, you know, like typical, house trailers uh smaller versions but they were flimsy so if the roof collapsed our beds would actually be strong enough to withstand that and keep us safe and of course if we were under our beds we were also below below the line of the sandbags so we'd be safe from shrapnel so uh so uh yeah it's just, it just struck me as so odd it's like here we are in war living in house trailers being told to hide under our beds and then you have the realization that that's actually pretty, pretty good advice. Really, yeah. <laughs> It's it's so bizarre. War is so freaking bizarre and ridiculous. <laughs> and that's yeah. just one example. Were the, how far were the trailers away from active combat? Um, I was in Camp Victory North. It was later renamed to Camp Liberty. Um, and we were pretty far away from a lot of direct combat. It was such a big base. We had, gosh, I think at least two or three U.S. divisions and then multiple uh, allied. I mean, we had like British forces and, you know, and, and others. Um, I think even the Poles, the Moldavians, uh, they all sent, they sent people. It was just this huge base. So the enemy didn't really attack us that much. Uh, a few times they tried you know, lobbing mortars and rockets at us. But for the most part, it was intercepted. It was the guys out on the far, the far out bases that were probably in the most danger. You had guys out there that were in small company or platoon size elements, anywhere from, uh, you know, maybe a hundred guys to 30 guys. And the enemy would feel like they had a better chance at, at making them suffer. So they, they would get, they would get the worst of it. I was actually pretty safe. Well, that does speak to the fact that the U.S. and its allies in the war are an occupying force that even though even though you did do some good while you were there, and of course, Saddam was a total bastard. I'm not standing Saddam. Saddam is not oh, yeah. my pog champ. <laughs> that, that like you co you're coming in with vastly superior wealth and firepower and you you see danger when you're being sent out away from the camp that's heavily fortified and going into the combat zones 
Yeah. Yeah. When we'd go out, it was pretty dangerous. Um, yeah, it was kind of weird. I mean, like the disparity of forces was, it, it made it feel, I don't know, a little unfair, but um, I mean, there were people there that, that liked having us around. Uh, there were people that Saddam treated badly. So of course those people were perfectly happy, you know, to have us there. Um, it makes the whole thing so, so ethically weird. So, you know, so much gray area and ambiguity and stuff. And, and again, that's not the kind of thing that you, you see in the movies or even in the newscasts. They like, they like pretty simple, clear-cut narratives. I have an Iraqi character, uh, ha uh, Hakim al-Mansouri, and, you know, he, you've read the comics, so he's kind of ambiguous. It's like he kind of gets along with the Americans, but he really wishes they'd go away, Um he kind of had to work with uh, Al-Qaeda and Iraq guys because they paid him money and he needed money to feed his family. And he kind of goes back and forth, but he has his own personal reasons for it. And he's just trying to survive. And I tried to put a human face to that. I don't know if I did it very well. I think you did because oh. for anyone who's on the ground, since the people making the big decisions tend to be quite, quite removed from the fighting it there are i imagine a lot of di difficulties and a lot of gray areas and a lot of contradictions yeah yeah i uh i mean i remember like you know people that, that really disliked this and and uh you know there was like anti-american graffiti but then i also remember a time we did a uh like a, a little patrol in Baghdad, we'd, we'd stop and just do traffic checks and stuff like that. And, and this, this lady came out from her house. She was all smiles. She was so glad we were there and she gave us homemade cookies. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. Sugar cookies. And I'm thinking I had some and they're pretty good, but I was like, I know sugar is rationed <laughs> right now. Wow. And, uh, you know, she used some of her rations, you know, to show some, some friendliness to us. And so I appreciated it, but yeah, it was just another one of those weird things that happens in war that just don't make any sense. Yeah, I do remember reading through your comics how you your characters reacted to the news of Abu Ghraib. Am I spelling it right? It's been a while, but of which of where Abu Ghraib? Abu Ghraib? How do you spell it? Oh, Abu Ghraib. Yeah, but oh, that was like a point yeah. where. It was a massive PR disaster for everything that the people on the ground were trying to accomplish. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was in country when that happened. So, and we all like, we're all just thinking, Oh my God, they just made our jobs 10 times harder. Um, a lot of the line troops, you know, were very dismayed by that. Um, some of them were, you know, they were genuinely, concerned for the Iraqi, you know, the welfare of the Iraqis, a lot of them were just thinking, you know, this has made our job harder. So they were thinking in terms of, you know, how it, how it hurts them. But either way, I mean, there was still that, that understanding that this, this was wrong. This was bad and uh, should not have, should not have happened. Um, yeah. And one thing that comes to mind is since, you did have quite a bit of downtime there. You did end up playing video games quite a bit, right? And tabletop games. 
Yeah, we had some tabletop games and some video games. Um, I did like a uh, like an online fan fiction thing, like a collaborative fan fiction thing. I'd go and write a couple pages and then upload it in the computer uh, on an internet cafe. Yeah, I was kind of lucky. I had, when we first got there, I had a couple of months of combat operations. And then I had about eight months of really just sitting around pulling guard duty. And then another couple of months doing combat operations and then I was gone. So, so yeah, that was, that was my, my boredom to terror ratio right there. Yeah. But on, in terms of a very slight silver lining around that time, it would have been PS2 and original Xbox, which was like the, the last offline generation of consoles. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Um, I never owned any of the systems myself. Some of the guys went out and bought them and I just come over and, and join them. Um, mostly I'd like to do the collaborative fiction stuff, which was, you know, much less uh, technically reliant. I could just type it up on my computer, save it on a thumb drive and then load it up in the, I did a star Wars fan fiction as a matter nice. of fact. <laughs> and that would have been around the time of attack of the clones. Uh, yeah, Attack of the Clones, and then I remember that the trailer for the release of uh, Revenge of the Sith was was coming out just as we were getting ready to cycle back home. So that gave me something to look forward to, being a big Star Wars nerd myself. Yeah. Did it live up to the expectations? It did. I thought it did a pretty good closure. The I was one of those people that thought that the, uh, the prequel trilogy was kind of ham-fisted. Uh, the writing wasn't that great. The dialogue wasn't that great. Um, I mean, I mean, you had like Liam Neeson in these shows. You had, uh, you know, um, you had some really big name actors who knew what they were doing. But this just goes to show you that even the best actors, if they have poor writing and poor directing, they they can't save it. You know, Natalie Portman. I mean, geez, Natalie Portman could have carried the movie by herself, but. They gave her crappy lines and bad directions, so there's only so much she could do. Yeah, I noticed online there's a lot more warmth towards the prequels now, but it seems to be because people don't like the quote-unquote woke Star Wars after Lucas left, and that yeah, that's weird. Um, people who really know the history of Star Wars if they go way, way back to the very beginning when it was still the Journal of the Wills, um, Luke and Leah were supposed to basically be kind of the same character. And then some aspects of Luke, like the hotshot pilot, was supposed to be part of Han. And, and Leah was supposed to be like a Jedi princess type thing. So really, like Rey kind of got back to the original concept. But this is this was a, a pre-designed concept from way back like... Uh, like the, when Ralph McQuarrie was still doing all the design work, um, you know, and they were designing things like the Millennium Falcon that looked like the, the Eagle from Space 1999. So, so like bringing in Ray was, was going back to the original, the original concept. And, you know, people said, oh, she just learned the force, like, like snapping her fingers. And I'm like, you know, Luke, Luke went, in about 36 hours went from being a farm boy to blowing up the death star. So, right. I mean, you know, come on people. They, they aren't interested in the logic behind it though. It's purely reaction. And, yeah. but the original star Wars was 
in its ways political. And one thing, I don't know if you've heard this stuff about the rebels supposed to be the Viet Cong. Yeah, they were based on the Viet Cong. And that, but that kind of speaks to something that America didn't learn from Vietnam, that they probably haven't learned from Iraq, that Russia is currently given an opportunity to learn in Ukraine that they're not <laughs> going to learn, that yeah. like you can't win an asymmetrical war against an occupied populace. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I think we we did kind of learn coin lessons, uh, counterinsurgency warfare lessons in Iraq. We were we were adapting to them, but it's it's hard. I mean, a standing army or or something when you're up against a, a popular movement, it's it's hard. I mean, it's it's an eternal game of whack-a-mole, so to speak. You know, and I don't mean to belittle the people that are suffering. Um, you know, on that, but, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's really best to just figure out what it is that the people want and try to come to an accommodation, try to come to some sort of agreement. Yeah. There's, it does feel like it, in that case, it's a war of attrition for when the bigger armies political will to keep spending money and lives on the war runs out. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, we have to see what Russia's breaking point is right now. Um, I mean, a lot of a lot of fairly large organized militaries have gone into countries, you know, and and found themselves up against uh, some sort of popular movement or something, and it didn't it didn't always turn out very well. Uh, you know, the U.S. and Vietnam, um, we we kind of. I don't know. Yeah. I, Iraq, Afghanistan, it didn't really work. Uh, the Soviets in Afghanistan as well. Yeah. I mean, the list goes on. Uh, Lebanon, for example. But Yeah. In your comic, comic, you follow the characters through, not just during the time overseas, but when they get home, when they start families of their own, when they deal with what it's like to be back among a civilian population and the expectations put upon them. And I, I did like, like that, it, how just far reaching the scope of your comic goes and how informative it is about the different steps and the bureaucracies at play. Thanks. I'm, I'm glad you like that. I, I kind of want to show one of the biggest one of the biggest uh, issues or hurdles a lot of people have coming home from the war, coming out of the military is readjusting to civilian life. Uh, Expectations are different. Uh, A lot of things are just different. You know, the pace things is different. Uh, Priorities are different. And sometimes, you know, a lot of guys, a lot of people, a lot of veterans uh, have a hard time adjusting because it's just the, there's that disparity of comprehension and uh, I don't know, it makes it hard. It's, it's, uh, I, I think that that's one of the reasons why a lot of people tend to come out of the military and they feel, especially if they've been in combat, they feel very alienated. Yeah. Um, well, you know. if we go by Hollywood treatments, that would usually manifest as like overt PTSD and flashbacks. But 
what you're describing sounds more complex and harder to isolate. I yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, one of the things, one of the one of the issues I have with the Hollywood portrayal is that veterans come back and they either just reassimilate into a society seamlessly, or they're just just basically nuts. You know, they're they're inconsolable or something, and and they're just completely uh, uh, marinating in grief 24-7 and sooner or later they act out and do something crazy that makes that kicks off some plot. Um, it's not an either-or thing. It's, it's very nuanced and there are better days and then there are worse days. And you can go for months or years without a problem and then one day you just, suddenly you just remember something and, and there you are, you know, you're right back at square one. Yeah. One thing that I don't know if you encountered this at all, but it it seems to come up a lot in my fandom space is how the military and later the police it, it, it domestically adopted the Punisher as a symbol. <laughs> did that yeah. did you see that much there, or was that later development? That was later. I I kind of saw it a little bit while I was deployed and you know on duty, but for the most part, it's like when people come home, you know, the veterans come home and then they kind of, there's, there's kind of what I sometimes call like a vet bro mentality or something. Um, you know, and the, the Punisher skulls are, are a large part of it. I never got into that. Um, it just seems a little over the top for me. And if, and anyone who's actually read the Punisher um, would know that he actually, the actual character of Frank Castle wouldn't, wouldn't like that he no yeah he uh he found cops he, he felt disdain towards a lot of police he felt that if they did their job properly he wouldn't be necessary yeah i've i've definitely seen that come up a lot especially in like recent punisher comics where there was a scene where he just pulled over a cop to tell him off and say to idolize captain america instead because you're not supposed to be like him yeah yeah, yeah, but then the Punisher, because, because at best he's basically a villain pointed in a more favorable direction at, at worst villains. Yeah. There, there's a lot of difficulty in pulling him off. And since we're no longer in like the era of Reagan and Stallone, where characters like that were unambiguously popular and there's always attempts to like shake him up and there was the time they made frank castle into a frankenstein's monster a franken castle if you will the time they made <laughs> him like an avenging angel from heaven recently they made him a ninja oh so my god they're and all that feels like they're just trying to get as far away from actually confronting the problem as possible yeah, didn't they? I think there was a storyline. I don't know if it was canon or not, but didn't they make him? They try to make him black at one point. They try to make him African American or something. I think there was a separate character who took on that okay. identity. I... Yeah, that was just so bizarre. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean the thing about Frank Castle, the the whole Punisher idea is that you know he he dispenses the justice that is not found in the justice system. And that's supposed to be, I think that's supposed to be what the motif is. But um, 
people get caught up in the idea that this is how you do justice. And it's like, no, no, wait, you're, you're doing the wrong thing by idolizing this guy. He's, you know, he's, he's the fail safe after everything else has failed. And it, it also, I, th- I think they've toyed with the idea, like what happens if Frank Castle kills an innocent guy on accident? And they've, they've never really addressed that because they, it's like, now what do we do? You know, we got this character who's, who's built for one thing and now we've just completely destructured him. It, it forces people to look at a lot of uncomfortable things. Yeah. And, but of course the influence is real and you mentioned vet bros who go in after coming home from uh, overseas wars go into local law enforcement and take on the mentality of effectively an occupying force yeah that's one of the things that kind of worries me i I haven't touched on this at all in the comic is that i I am a little worried about the over military actually actually, i'm very worried about the over militarization of the police um the police tend to be you know outfitted in a lot of surplus military gear they're getting mraps um you know large caliber machine guns uh various heavy weapons not all police forces of course but but some and uh it just creates a dangerous mentality i mean it 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 does put you in that us versus them you know that idea that the only people you can trust are your brothers and sisters right next to you and everybody else is is out to get you or out to do something bad and you have to figure out what that is before they can do it. It's, I don't think it makes a healthy, healthy mindset. Um, I do, I do think that police are necessary, but not in the way that they're currently constructed. Uh, We should get back to like the old, you know, the older ideas, like the police is, you know, like, helping society, helping, helping the community, uh, living in the community that they police in. Um, yeah. And less, less of the confrontational stuff, but yeah, I don't know. That's like a, that's, that's an old fashioned uh, notion now it seems. Well, a lot's changed since you started the comic and while before it was like a few years behind more recently, you seem to be acknowledging some of the newer developments, like, of course, the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of Bohica Blues was about 10 years behind. I started the comic in 2013 and the Iraq war was started in 2003. So I just kind of picked up and everything was, was 10 years behind. And once I finished the main comment, the main story, and I b- bought them home from Iraq, I tried to get things a little bit more topical, a little bit more on point. In fact, I've got four or five comics coming up very soon now that will be uh, addressing uh, Ukraine. Uh, so not directly. They're not going to go to Ukraine, but uh, they're going to talk about it a bit. Yeah. Well, one thing that ha- I have to praise about the comic is the dogs. You do <laughs> quite a few stories from the perspective of military dogs. And of course, dogs are wonderful and adorable. Yeah. Yeah, though I got to ask just for my own sake, what about the cats of war? Like, did you see much in the way of cats on base or on the ground? 
it's a truism of the Middle East that uh, there are stray cats pretty much everywhere, and there's a lot of mice. And so stray cats pretty much are just allowed to go stray and just eat all the mice they can get. So we saw a lot of cats. We saw stray cats. We saw, um, you know, people would leave food out for cats and stuff, but it was more of that, that kind of hands-off symbiosis where uh, people would put out food and stuff and just let the cats do what they want as long as they kept the mice, mice population down. So, yeah. I mean, there obviously there's not organized uh, like cats for uh, for carrying out like like bomb sniffing duties or something like that because they actually have more sensitive noses than dogs, but they they don't take to the they don't do the commands and stuff. They don't really, you know, dogs are dogs are willing to work for treats. Yeah, cats aren't willing to work for anyone. <laughs> yeah. They work for themselves, man. <laughs> yeah. So going forward, mention touching on Ukraine and some of the scripts. What what else do we have to see? Like I know you've mentioned that Bohemia Blues will conclude at some point, but do you have anything planned after that in terms any projects? As a matter of fact, I am working on a science fiction uh, action adventure story that is. It's, it's not like Bohica Blues is pretty family friendly, really. I think uh, you could put a kid down in front of Bohica Blues and, and they could read it without alarming the parents. Um, the science fiction action adventure story I'm planning is going to be a little bit more R-rated. It's going to be, you know, we've got, um, you know, some people who are veterans and they're dealing with it in angry ways. Uh, they're on a mission. Um, there's a guy that he doesn't want to face the realities of his life. He drowns himself in, uh, in prostitutes and alcohol. So, um, you know, and then, yeah, stuff like that, you know, a little bit more mature themes. Um, yeah, that's it. I definitely would want to see you do that. And I definitely think would like to see, since you do a lot of detail of like, military equipment and military hardware in the comic, but usually as a prop for a gag. Yeah. (laughs) Recently I was reading a a book by Hideo Kojima, the creator of Metal Gear Solid, where he was talking about how in Japan they have like this reverence for like military hardware with and technology with all the Gundams and stuff, but they also having lost a war where they were an imperial power, they, they've definitely been humbled to realize where that path can lead. But within, this, within America, within the States, do you see any examples of fiction that deals with that tension? Um, in what regard do you mean? Like, realizing that yes we are conditioned to love the military and on some level we're all just we all see it as like boys with toys and how awesome big guns are but knowing that there is it's not really healthy as a way to perceive the world and engage with foreign policy i don't know i I don't know if that realization 
has really sunk in because there's still, I mean, we have a all volunteer military, there's no conscription and something like less than maybe 1% of the total population or 2% of the total population actually serves. So there's still this idea that, that military activity and war, these are all kind of abstracts for a lot of people. And there's still that, you know, that sense that this is just a big grand adventure, uh, a great game, if you will. Um, but then every now and again, I think we, we have the opportunity for a reality check. Uh, like, like right now with, with Ukraine, they're getting a lot of, uh, a lot of pretty intense stuff from Ukraine. And if you go on places like YouTube or probably TikTok or something, you might see stuff that would not make it on the evening news. Um, so people, people should see that this, this stuff comes at a cost and sometimes that cost is terrible. And it's good to remember that. Yeah, definitely. And also that, like the benefits offered by the military in the States are some of the last social safety nets that are intact. So that's, and if it's tied to be joining the armed forces and being on reserve to go into combat, that's not really a safety net, is it? No, it's not really. Um, yeah. People I've seen memes on, on, online sometimes people say well if you want free college you know you should do you know join the military and I'm, I'm thinking to myself this this isn't exactly free you're literally selling three or four years of your life and uh and under if the circumstances come up wrong you might not get those years back yeah so so oh. yeah thank you so much for coming on eric you can check out his comic of oh, the blues in the links below and thank you for providing a send off to the this era of the podcast i'll be back Absolutely. to do more episodes at some point probably what during my next furlough whenever that may be so <laughs> all right i look again. forward to, i look forward to hearing more from you so thank you very much good question thank you. bye bye